Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us for the Advocacy and Pharmacy podcast. This podcast, hosted by ASHP's Government Relations Office, provides an update on what ASHP is currently involved with on the Hill at the state level, upcoming advocacy opportunities, PAC fundraisers, and strategies to increase member involvement with the representatives. My name is Jillian Schulte-Wall, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Advocacy and Pharmacy podcast. Joining me is my uh, partner in crime on compounding, Mike Ganio, ASHP Senior Director of Pharmacy Practice and Quality. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Happy to join. All right, so let's get started talking about our favorite topic right now, which is FDA's compounding guidance. So before we kind of get into our back and forth on this, and you know, for members who are listening to this, Mike and I have worked on this together since Mike joined ASHP, and actually one of the first big things I worked on when I joined ASHP was the initial draft compounding guidance. So that's how long we've been waiting for this new draft, just to kind of situate everybody temporally before we get started. So quick background on where we are with the FDA guidance document. The original document was promulgated in 2016, and it it stemmed from the Drug Quality and Security Act after the NECC disaster. So the the key here was to try to prevent another New England compounding center tragedy going forward. And um, the DQSA had two parts. One half was track and trace, and the half we're going to focus on today was compounding. And the general idea behind the, the, the law was that compounding in anticipation of receiving a patient prescription was sort of going to be farmed out to these new 503B outsourcing facilities. So essentially, it created an entirely new category of compounders at the federal level. And FDA was going to be responsible for oversight of 503Bs. States would stay responsible for 503As. But anticipatory compounding by 503As was going to be really heavily limited. Um, So the idea was if you were a 503A, regardless of your your settings, if you're a community pharmacy or if you're a hospital or health system, you really, the idea was you wouldn't be doing much anticipatory compounding at all going forward and that you would farm most of it out to a 503B or you could just register as a 503B, which (laughs) sounds like a great idea in practice, but is very hard to do. I'm sorry, in theory, but it's very hard to do in practice. So we haven't seen a whole lot of uh, uptake on registering as a 503B for a variety of reasons. So anyway, that's where we started from. We got the guy document in 2016. We talked FDA through a number of listening sessions into having a document specific to hospitals and health systems. So there is another 503A compounding document that is for community pharmacies and other sites of care. The document we're going to talk about today is the one that's specific to hospitals and health systems. So the 2016 document was really kind of a wholesale revamp of compounding in hospitals and health systems. And sort of the key piece of it was this idea that if you were a hospital or health system and you wanted to do anticipatory compounding, you would have to do it. If you did it in a pharmacy on your campus, there was a geographic limit on how far you could then send those prescriptions, even if it was to an affiliated or wholly owned or operated site of care. You, you couldn't send those prescriptions more than one mile from the pharmacy that compounded them. And this is only for things without a patient uh, name attached. So this was really kind of an arbitrary way to, to limit compounding in the hospital and health system space. 
And FDA, in conversations with them after the document was promulgated, said, you know, we know this isn't really workable in practice, but we need another dividing line. So one of the things to note about FDA here is that a lot of the guidance documents, they are developed with practitioner input, but in most cases, they're drafted by lawyers. So as a lawyer myself, who pretends to be a pharmacist sometimes, it it really, the way lawyers look at the the language and the writing is very different from how somebody who's trying to implement this in clinical practice will look at it. And you'll hear this when Mike and I start to talk about how we viewed the document initially. So anyway, FDA needed a different standard to kind of implement um, some sort of limitation on the amount of compounding going on in hospitals and health systems. So with this new, it's a new draft guidance. So it is not currently enforceable. And we'll get to that in a second. But in the new draft guidance, so it was just promulgated, FDA revamped their framework again and said, look, we're going to take a risk-based approach to compounding. And they pulled out the one-mile radius and more or less replaced it with this requirement that um, if you are compounding in anticipation of receiving a patient prescription, so like, you know, bulk, non-patient-specific compounding, you can do that. And there's no geographic limitation. But once that product is transferred out of the pharmacy, you have 24 hours to either use it or dispose of it. And in our comment letter on the initial guidance, we said we wanted a time-based standard, but what we really wanted was implementation of the USP Beyond Use dating for sterile products because that matches what's currently done in practice. So from a compliance standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. It's also not disruptive to current care delivery models in the same way like a sudden switch to a 24-hour requirement would be. So um, that is kind of the lay of the land, generally speaking. The other thing to note here, and when we're talking about this, is scoping it appropriately. So I think um, kind of the initial reaction to these FDA guidance documents is always sort of (laughs) sheer panic at the idea that everything you're compounding is suddenly going to be under FDA jurisdiction. In reality, it's really important to know that FDA's definition of compounding differs substantially from USPs. And so Mike is our USP expert, so we can provide more detail about this down the road. But generally speaking, anything that's a manipulation of a sterile product is a sort of USP compounding. For FDA, they are looking at a situation where you're creating a new unapproved drug. So their key kind of metrics here are whether it's something that's going to circumvent their approval process and also whether it's something that creates risk in a way that could result in a new NECC. So those are sort of the two imperatives that FDA is looking at. Um, So if you are, for instance, compounding in accordance with a package insert or package instructions, package labeling, that is not FDA compounding. That will not be included under this guidance. Um, That is not what FDA is interested in. Even if you are taking a commercially available drug and making changes to it, they have to be fairly significant. It's over 10% change in strength. And again, these are only for non-patient-specific medications. So if you're adding two drugs together in a way that is not contemplated by the labeling of the, the products, in most cases from what we've heard so far is that is done for identified patients. It's not something that's commonly done in, in practice. Um, bulk, although Mike has some, I'm sure, <laughs> examples of situations where it does happen. So just as we get into this, that is sort of the, the big lay of the land, like what you need to keep in mind when you're thinking about what FDA is considering compounding and then how that works in practice with the new risk-based enforcement approach. So let's jump into actually letting Mike talk a little bit. So Mike, what was your initial impression of the new draft guidance? 
Um, well, the first thing was a little bit of a sense of relief that the one mile was was gone. I mean, that was, that was somewhat arbitrary. And, you know, the reason why I think we push for hospitals and health systems to have our own guidance is we're, we're not selling product, you know. So if we're if we're pushing something out beyond a one mile radius, it's because there are ambulatory clinics or maybe there's a hospital that doesn't have a fully compliant clean room. And so it's in the interest of patient safety and in a better quality of compounding that can occur in a centralized compounding facility and then send some products to our ambulatory care clinics. So that being a safer alternative than practitioners at the bedside try to trying to mix or compound on their own. So seeing the one mile radius go away uh, is definitely an improvement, but I agree with you. You know, our goal was really to have 797 beyond use dates implemented. Um, and again, we're not selling the products. So if it's being used within our own health systems, you're really mitigating the risk of another New England compounding center. Um, you know, we're, we're talking finite amounts. We're talking limited exposure for patients. So really the beyond use dates from, from 787 should be sufficient to protect our, our patients in the event there is some sort of contamination or error. So seeing the one mile rule go, go away is, is a positive for being able to push products out to clinics or to other sites that maybe don't have the ability to, to perform sterile compounding under the same conditions that we would like to see. However, it, it's still sort of an arbitrary limitation on, on what products can, can be sent or how many can be sent. The, the problem to me with the 24 hour is it says transfer. Uh, it doesn't say a 24 hour beyond use date. So in theory, something could be held in the pharmacy for you know nearly the full beyond use date and then pushed out. So we haven't really mitigated to the risk in my opinion, because you could still prepare a batch of say 20 products or 20 units. And whether you push them all out to a clinic at once or you send a few each day, what what have you changed that's mitigating the risk here? So there's still a sort of arbitrary limitation, and I think we um, will address some of that with with FDA in our comments, and you know try to get that at least lengthened so that it makes a little bit more sense for standard operations. Again, thinking through how we're using these products, we're not compounding some of these things or, or, or transferring them on weekends. So the 24 hour really creates a problem for for some of the operations. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the transfer out of the pharmacy. So it's interesting as an attorney looking at this, my kind of lawyer lizard brain, my immediate knee-jerk reaction was that this was actually great news for pharmacy in part because when the agencies decide on a risk-based approach to enforcement, that tends to mean they don't want to or don't think they need to invest heavily in resources for compliance in a certain sector. Like this is sort of self-policing to some degree. You know, FDA really does have limited money is to look at what's going on and compounding across the board. And they, I think the, the belief with the agency is that most of the risk is with large manufacturers of products and not with hospitals and health systems because of the factors that Mike listed. You know, there's a different quality kind of mentality for hospitals and health systems, plus there are all the CMS conditions of participation requirements. So I think there was a lot of stuff that was sort of backstock in this idea that compounding in hospitals and health systems, you know, had to be limited. They don't want hospitals to become manufacturers without registering as 503Bs at minimum, but they also recognize that there are safeguards in place. So you look at the, the risk-based enforcement approach, that transfer out of the pharmacy thing, that really caught my eye because as an attorney, I was like, oh, you know, transfer out of the pharmacy. Obviously, that means it's going to like it's when it leaves the pharmacy to go to the floor. 
And when Mike and I were talking about it initially, um, you know, the first one of the first questions that came up was like, well, what if you're transferring from a pharmacy to a pharmacy? Like if it's going, is that still a transfer out of a pharmacy or is it still within pharmacy control? And what about Pixis machines and automated dispensing cabinets? And this is where you really see kind of the juxtaposition of when lawyers draft things and when clinicians start to implement them because I think to the lawyers drafting this that made a lot of sense and even to me initially I was like oh yeah of course it means this but then you know pharmacists god love you all and I am married to pharmacists all the time I really do love pharmacists but you are very detail-oriented very black and white and I think one of the things that happens is when there is flexibility built into FDA documents or like any kind of guidance documents it makes people nervous because there's not a clear like black and white answer to every single one of your questions and a clear sort of like linear way to comply with things. So I, you know, just keep in mind that I think FDA was really trying to give us everything we asked for. They just didn't quite hit it in part because I don't know that they had the clinical input that would have been really valuable here. But again, this is draft. So like Mike said, we're com- we're fairly, well, I wouldn't say confident, but I would say cautiously optimistic <laughs> that we'll be able to kind of swap out that 24-hour piece. So Mike, one of the other things that came up when we were looking at the guidance document initially was sort of the focus on 503Bs. And I'm interested in what your reaction to that was. Well, first I have to add an anecdote. So I worked for ASHP for probably six months before I realized you were not a pharmacist. So kudos to being able to speak the language and and staying in lots of holiday inns and and getting your pharmacy license at checkout because I had no idea you weren't a pharmacist for about six months. Um, The other thing I did want to mention, you you touched on something that we, yeah, pharmacists are, uh, you know, we tend to look for those details and we tend to to look for the guidance for the gray areas. And I think a lot of the reason for that is the difference in, in enforcement and, and the differences we hear from state to state or even from survey to survey or from a state board or from a, an accreditation survey. So because there's that little bit of wiggle room or some flexibility, that means that the people who are evaluating what we're doing have their own interpretation. And because of that variance, it just, it creates a lot of angst. And so it's, it's kind of nice to have some things in black and white. The gray is appreciated when it does give us some of that wiggle, but as long as, but we, we need people to see this the same way we see it. Otherwise that gray area is, is just another potential reason to, to uh, go through a survey and have to explain your reasoning and have a difference in perspective. So anyway, back to your question about the 503Bs, you know, in general, ASHP's policy statements on you know sourcing from commercially manufactured when available. The assumption is that a commercially manufactured product is it's safer, it's a higher quality. Um, we don't necessarily have policy that would say that a 503B would be next in line. However, they're following GMP, and you should be able to assume that it is also high quality. However, that assumption is not as clear. Um, and we actually have policy asking for FDA to develop and implement quality ratings for 503Bs. So because there are 70 to 80 503Bs and the FDA essentially inspects each one at least once, um, but there's not as there's not as robust of a quality check with 503Bs. And so there's some reluctance on the part of, uh, of pharmacies to purchase knowing some of the history with 503Bs and, and some of the warning letters and some of the dangers and risks. And again, there's risks with 503A compounding. It's just inherent in the act of compounding, sterile product manipulation. 
but there seems to be a huge push toward 503Bs. And there's, again, there's that little bit of limitation with quality. There's also limitation in capacity for the 503Bs. Um, there's limitations in what they can provide. So there may be items that either have low volume and the 503Bs don't have the interest or the bandwidth to, to make those products, or there's limited stability. So if a product's not stable for more than you know 90 days, what, what good is it for 503B to compound it? Because it's going to go to waste by the time it gets to a, to a pharmacy or to a hospital and sits on a shelf or sits in a dispensing cabinet. Um, because again, that's kind of the point of these products and why we're doing them in, in anticipation is because they're needed at a bedside procedure or for an emergency. And so they're, they're not earmarked for a particular patient. They're going to sit in a clinic or on a shelf or in a dispensing cabinet for a few days to a few weeks before they might be needed. So those are some of the some of the limitations, the concerns with the push for 503B in the document. Yeah, so I think that we've talked about it a little earlier, kind of touched on it, but FDA is sort of hamstrung on 503Bs to some degree. I think there's a concern when you read it initially, like, why are they pushing this so hard? But then when you remember it's part of the law, I mean, the law, that statute, DQSA, underpins all the regulation that FDA is doing. So they really have to, you know, they are limited. The strict parameters are created by the statute. Then they have some wiggle room to implement it, but they can't go outside of the statute. So they can't say like, eh, use the 503B if you want to. Like, it's really the idea contemplated by DQSA was that if you're doing anticipatory compounding, you're either registered as a 503B or you're, you are using a 503B. But like Mike said, you know, we just, the the market is still evolving. You know, there's a concern about the, the quality, particularly because the warning letters do stay up for a long time. So if you are looking as a compliance officer at the, the the warning letters that live on FDA's site for 503Bs, it probably will give you pause because it's literally, I think at this point, every single 503B has been inspected. So some, some findings are really minor, but there's no follow-up. So you don't know what's been ameliorated or mitigated. Um, so I could see where that would make folks really nervous. Plus, I think... With capacity, I, you know, one of the things FDA says in, in the risk-based enforcement approach is they look at this initial safe harbor. And if you're doing three things, then you're sort of outside of FDA's area of concern. So if you are compounding in accordance with FDA regulations, so you're not, it's not in sanitary conditions, basically you're complying with everything you're complying with now. You are only using products you're compounding for your own patients. You're not selling them. Like Mike said, you know, hospitals aren't making batches of things and selling them as far as we're aware. And then um, this 24-hour use or transfer, I'm sorry, use or disposal after transfer out of a pharmacy, FDA doesn't care. But what's interesting, if you, you are missing one of those pieces, FDA then moves into another set of risk factors to determine whether they are going to intervene. Um, and I think the most important one is obviously this idea that if you're doing anything that is insanitary or threatened sterility or is a quality concern, that is probably going to be the key trigger for FDA to come in and involve themselves in inspecting a hospital or a health system. Um, and it's also worth noting that like FDA can, even with this guidance document, is not prevented from coming into a hospital or health system whenever it pleases. It can, under the law as it stands. But the other thing that's included as an enforcement factor is this idea, the idea that you wouldn't have provisions in place for getting a product that is compounded in anticipation from a 503B. So it's interesting because like that is, I think, 
FDA's way of saying, look, we really do need to be integrating 503Bs into practice. So if you are doing all your compounding in-house and you're not doing it under the safe harbor, if you haven't even looked at using a 503B and you don't have policies and procedures in place or maybe like a standing order or something like that, we don't know because it's kind of amorphous. That can be a trigger for FDA to come and, and inspect, which I thought was really interesting. But one of the things you said might kind of trigger me to uh, talk about something we hadn't really talked in detail about yet, and that's the scoping of this. So what is your impression of, you know, the the universe of things that might be considered FDA compounding that would pose particular problems for hospitals and health systems, recognizing that that's a pretty big problem? Yeah, yeah. And, and you you kind of hit the nail on the head earlier when you said that Preparation per product labeling is not compounding. So if I'm taking a bulk package of 10 vancomycin doses and I'm preparing infusion bags of you know 10 one gram doses, that that's anticipatory compound or that's anticipatory preparation, but it's not compounding per FDA's definition. And I can't think of a situation where you might put vancomycin up in a dispensing cabinet or something unless it's pre-surgery, in which case you, you can still get a a label and an order and, and dispense it pursuant to a prescription, but that's not the kind of preparation we're talking about. So we're talking about mixing, combining, changing a product, as you noted. So things like uh, adding sodium bicarbonate uh, to lidocaine and, and creating buffered lidocaine. So that would be considered compounding under FDA's definition. And I know that's commonly used in some office-based clinics. So if you are doing that, say, you know, once every few days and then sending the the, the doses out so that the clinicians don't have to prepare them at the bedside, which I would argue is safer, 24 hours after that transfer, it should be disposed. Um, and again, as I mentioned, that can be a little problematic with weekends. It can be a little problematic with, depending on your staffing and if you have a 24-hour pharmacy. Um, but the scope, I think, is limit, it's more limited than what people are, are assuming. So when you are thinking about what you're doing in anticipation, take a look at what, what you are batching and consider how much of this is actually compounding per FDA's definition. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things we're going to ask for extensive member feedback on. If there are things that um, you are compounding regularly that are um, non-patient specific and that would qualify under FDA's definition, that's something we need to know to kind of incorporate into our comments, because I think that's the kind of information that's really helpful to the agency. You know, they have, I think there's this tendency, and I, I say this a lot during presentations um, to to our members, there's this tendency to assume that FDA, because it is a fairly large agency, has all of the expertise it needs that lives on its campus. And that is just not the case. I mean, one of the things that's sort of a hallmark of the regulatory agencies is they do have to do notice and comment rulemaking because they don't have all the expertise they need in-house. And ASHP has really worked hard to make sure that like our our members' voices on these issues are treated with authority and, you know, respect because we don't complain to the agency about every little thing. There are a few things that really kind of create tension with um, regulation. Generally, it seems like our membership is fairly, you know, it's annoying, but it's a, it's a, feature of the system that you're going to have a lot of regulation. So I think, you know, when we say like, we really do have a problem with this in a practicey way, I think that's taken pretty seriously by the agency. I think that's, when you look at the compounding guidance, the, the change, the switch from the one mile to 24 hour, that was an 
reflection of our comments, our members' comments. And then the other piece that's also a reflection, I'll just mention really briefly here because it's not going to come into play as much. Part of the guidance also deals with situations where you're compounding commercially available products or you're you're documenting what you're compounding. And previously there wasn't a way to do it at sort of a formulary level for things that have to be compounded really regularly. So like PEDS drugs in particular come to mind and some of the oncologics, I think, too. And so we got all that feedback from members, sent lists of things that were included. And FDA said, okay, we're going we're gonna to modify the process for hospitals and health systems so that they, there is a way to kind of at a formulary level document why something has to be compounded for patients that won't be so onerous where you're, you know, there aren't paper or electronic prescriptions moving back and forth between a physician's office and the pharmacy in the hospital and health system setting, which is sort of how most compounding is still seen by FDA, even though they recognize there are other settings. So, you know, you just have to remember that, like, your comments as a member don't just dissolve into the ether. They are heard at the agency level. And I think in this case, there was definitely a a response to those comments. A lot of the language in the, the guidance really reflects language that we included in our initial comments on the 2016 draft. So and offered through listening sessions and yeah, yeah, fully agree that the membership, anything that you are preparing, again, if you think of things that you're compounding, whether it's starter TPN, if you can't get stuff like that from a five or three B or buffered lidocaine or other things, those examples are extremely helpful. Uh, I know uh, Jill Ann mentioned pediatrics. There's a lot of instances where, you know, oral solutions are compounded because they're not commercially available. If you're sending those in anticipation to the floor and you have, you know, good examples of why those might be needed urgently, because this guidance isn't limited to sterile compounding. So we need to hear those examples and and we definitely appreciate the feedback. We do share it with the agency. And as Jill Ann mentioned, they've clearly listened and they value our input. Yeah, I really, I just... One of the things that that's reminded me about is that when we are looking at the definition of FDA compounding, they don't differentiate between sterile and non-sterile the way USP compounding definition does. So they're looking at like everything you compound and it's, it's not premised on whether a drug is sterile or non-sterile. So that's also important to note when you're kind of scoping what would be included under FDA's um, guidance document here. So, you know, we're, we're working within this current draft. Um, you know, it's not currently enforceable. Please, 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 if your board of pharmacy tries to enforce this, which happened with the 2016 draft, even up until COVID hit, let us know right away. There is a disclaimer, very <laughs> clear disclaimer at the top of this guidance that says draft guidance, not enforceable, but boards of pharmacy can get... Uh, pretty far out ahead of their skis sometimes. And so we just want to make sure that that is, no one's trying to comply with this as it's currently written because we think there's likely to be changes. So with that in mind, we have comments due on December 6th. Yes. And we're going to, we're going to, I think, highlight two things. One is this transfer out of the pharmacy issue. And the other is removing the 24-hour requirement and replacing it with a BUD standard. And Mike, from a practice perspective, Will that BUD switch, like if we switch that over, will that kind of ameliorate concerns? Do you think that'll make this pretty workable in practice? Or are there other things that we also need to consider? Oh, I think that actually makes it very workable um, because that's the, those are the conditions we would normally operate under anyway. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, conditions of participation, 
are pretty standard, even though state compounding regulation and enforcement of the regulation might vary state to state, at least within the health systems, we're dealing with accreditation and therefore conditions of participation. And 797 is part of those conditions. So we're already uh, adhering to those standards and it makes it consistent. It makes it, it makes it make sense, to be honest. Uh, 24 hours is arbitrary. And as I said, because it's the word transfer, it's not a beyond use data means we haven't really mitigated the risk. All we've done is make it so that it's not available outside of the pharmacy for more than 24 hours. Yeah. Oh, that's, I think that's good news for members. So that seems to be a very reasonable place to kind of push the agency. Um, and as you said, you know, when something's arbitrary, the agencies don't love things to be arbitrary. It opens them up to litigation. Now, obviously agencies can hunker down for years <laughs> with their litigation. They don't have to pay for it the same way that you or I or any of our organizations would have to. So, you know, I think there, but there's a willingness here to make sure that whatever they promulgate does actually work with existing care delivery models. FDA is sort of a, a world apart because it deals more with drug approvals and drug oversight. It really has a strange, I think it has a, they have a very hard time integrating into conversations about healthcare practice. So, you know, the intersection of CMS and FDA requirements, like conditions of participation and this compounding guidance, I think that's hard for the agency sometimes to, to wrap its mind around because it's not something, this is not an area where they play. This is more healthcare provision in some ways than what FDA is used to doing and is particularly comfortable with, I think. So just, you know, when you look at what FDA is doing, bear in mind that they sort of do this in a in a black box away from the rest of like the HHS sub-agencies. And that is very wonky, <laughs> I admit. Like that's one of those like insider GC things. But it, I think it does kind of help situate what FDA is trying to do and contextualize it so that it makes a little more sense maybe. So anyway, we are developing our comment letter. We, you know, ideally if you can get feedback into Mike and I uh, as soon as possible, that would be ideal. But, you know, I think we'll, we'll kind of do a cutoff at around right before Thanksgiving. Cause at that point, you know, everybody's scattered for Thanksgiving and we don't expect a whole lot of input, but you know, I think we're, we've got sort of our key areas carved out. Mike, anything else we should add for members? No, I think just stay tuned for, uh, hopefully we don't have to wait another five years for the next draft or, or final guidance, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, it's a pro it's definitely a process. Fingers crossed. So I think, like I said, I think we are cautiously optimistic, and we're looking forward to having some more conversations with the agency about this. I think one of the things we will ask for in our comment letter is a, an additional listening session with them, just so they can get some of the the more nuanced pieces from us in person, if that's what they need to kind of complete the guidance. So uh, that's all we have time for today. Mike, thanks for joining us to talk about this amazing, fabulous uh, conversational topic that everyone wants to bring up their holiday parties. And you guys should be all set for that now. So you're welcome. Anyway, join us here the first Tuesday of every month when we will be talking about all things advocacy related. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.